Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There was a particular finance company and, and some of the information being sent to it didn't actually reflect what was going on on the ground. Cab went, you know, and, and tracked down a lot of people who had bought cars and, you know, traded in cars and were asked who did they deal with. And these men were the people that were seen as the controlling interest. And they very much were making the case, which was accepted by the judge in the end, that this was a vehicle literally set up to launder money from the drug gangs. And it's not just one of them. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Rival gangs in Limerick's lethal underworld feud dealt with a board of governors of criminal businessmen to launder their cash and make deals. Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the massive secret Garda investigation into the city's gangland network, which has laid bare how, in the underworld, when it comes to money, rivalry no longer matters. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. The story this week that you were writing about the gangs in Limerick and their board of governors really tells us one thing, and it is how they have emerged into very sophisticated organised crime gangs from really where they started as feuding, brawling, murderous drug dealers. Yeah, I mean, like to get... The detail was great. Um, it, it kind of shows you how there's a kind of a whole layer of, I suppose, illicit business people, uh, you know, people who are kind of able to control the logistics and handle the management. Because when you think about the millions that are being, you know, generated by by the drugs trade, that you do need people with a certain level of skill that you're not going to descend into the mayhem that we saw like in, in during the 2000s when, you know, the feud going on between the the King Collipies and and the McCarthy Dundons. What is it? Seventeen people thought to have been yeah. killed, and several people serving life sentences. You know, as a result of the various murders that went on, two innocent people. You know, among those killed, some of those killed were were very minor criminals and certainly didn't deserve what they got. When you looked into Limerick, those in those days, you saw um, a lot of these people were still living in council estates. Many of them still are. There didn't look they didn't sort of stand out as having wealth other than maybe having turned turned their house into a fortress with, you know, 
bullet resistant windows and maybe large gates or something. But they, there was something that looked so unsophisticated about them. Violent, yes, absolutely, but unsophisticated. And it was like as if the violence took precedent over the making of the money. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. Look, I mean, there was people, it, it was almost blood feuds rather than, you know, yeah. business disagreements. And it, it was more about trying to be the big dog on the block or just for the pure sake of it. It was just crazy macho stuff, to be honest. I mean, even back then there was, you know, kind of a, a more shadowy senior tier that were kind of working at us. You had, you know, the, the various people based in, you know, surrounding uh, County Limerick who were really calling the shots and who were quite serious, some of whom went on trial, some of who didn't. You know, these are people who were able to operate um, international import-export companies. So while, you know, the likes of the Dundons were running around the place killing people and, you know, the Colopies running around the place um, killing people and themselves, there, there wasn't, uh, you know, there, there were some people who were able to keep their eye on the ball and keep mm. making money. And I think what what we got from from this recent cab case was a little insight into who these new border governors are. And some of them are, have come directly from the, you know, the original gangs, the likes of Eds McCarthy, mm-hmm. um, who's, you know, effectively became the the leader of the McCarthy-Dundon faction. You, you've written about him before as well. Um, and the and fact that... of course, to Thomas Bomber Cabin. Yeah, I mean, he was there in, 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 in Birmingham. So, I mean, you have a direct link. I mean, you know, it's three degrees of separation from the Kinnahans to Eds McCarthy from Moy Ross in Limerick. And then I, I think what quite surprised, well, not surprised me, but what I suppose confirmed for me um, about this was that the, these guys essentially are working together. Like, you know, what were, you know, deadly rivals are, have, you know, to a large extent have put this behind them uh, and, and they're just getting on with making money. They're they're dealing with these intermediaries um, like, you know, I'm. I'm you know, and from the on the face of it, it certainly looks like they're all willing to do business. I mean, you you have one guy, mm. you know, who's, who's pals with Eds McCarthy, and, and then he's collated in 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 a pub in Rathkeel meeting with uh, Christy Keane and his his uh, trusted lieutenant. You know, the arch rivals isn't that really what stands out for us since the you know the advent of drugs hitting the north in the same way you have the loyalists and the republican paramilitaries actually sometimes working together sometimes you know when it comes to money they put all their differences aside but explain this and why you described these men that we have named you've named in your piece in the Sunday world this weekend and were named in this cab document as a board of governors well, it's the best way to describe them, really. Um, you know, the, these are the people that control, to some extent, the international connections. So you had like Shane Curtin, who up until recently, you know, we could only if we did refer to him, it was as a motor dealer. Um, but he, he's been exposed pretty much by by this case against Bond Motors as being a key player in the importation of drugs from continental Europe and the UK. Um you know, alongside alongside him, yeah, yeah, you have uh, John O'Donoghue, who, a, a businessman from Rathkeel. Um, you know, he would have been part of what would have been seen as the Rathkeel Rovers one time. Uh, he, like, we, we managed to do stories about him more recently uh, because he did get a drugs conviction, although got a suspended sentence. He was he was caught by the NCA on on tape setting up a, a cannabis deal. Um, so, like he he was an, he's an associate of Eds McCarthy, and he was one of these guys that were alleged to have direct control of Bone Motors, along along with uh, Mike Nash, who was also another motor dealer 
uh, based in Newcastle West and was very close to Shane Curtin. So those and three... And Bourne Motors sits at the centre of this story and this uh, this document by the, the, the courts, which is the sort of the judgment, I think, from the Criminal Assets Bureau case. And it starts in 2019 when the cab officers uh, cut their way into Bourne Motors in Limerick City. And they remove 115 high-end cars. And people may remember that because at the time it was the biggest single asset seizure, I think, in the history of the Criminal Assets Bureau. And maybe it remains that way. Yeah, it was It was certainly, it, it was, it, it certainly on the face of it at the time, it was definitely the biggest physical operation. Um, I think that the actual value of the cars probably ended up being slightly less, I think, than was initially touted. Um, and, and what the cab case, it was actually heard last December and and basically all the cars had since been sold off and so but so the what it's what they do now with the criminal assets where they seize valuable um you know things like cars that are going to depreciate in value yeah. well they used to depreciate in value there was a little blip in that recently um like they they will sell them off and then and 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 put the the cash into account and so it's the cash that's actually it was the order of of the seizure act they this hold time that cash so, essentially yeah, on that, reserve yeah. and 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 like it was a very complex case um you, you know, you had you had um, Shane Curtin and Mike Nash and, and others that were claiming part ownership of different cars and that they had different ways of of knowing whose whose cars were which and that they had pooled resources and you know there was kind of it, it was it was you know the cab case was that there was a deliberate kind of attempt n- uh, not to leave any records and you, you know there was literally no 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 real uh, proper bookkeeping or anything like this and no way of of, of showing really who owned which which car which cars. And- Curtin put himself on record in this case because I recall when this started to come before the courts, the Criminal Assets Bureau case, there was a number of individuals named and Curtin actually came forward to say, actually, sorry, I own some of these. I'm so he actually sort of put himself in this, <clears throat> yeah, but he, for he, reasons that yeah, will be explained he, he, in this judgment. Yeah, I mean, he could, he could come to regret that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... There was, um, yeah, there was a number of uh, of people kind of were were, were claiming ownership, um, uh, and like the the cab went to great lengths. I mean, they got various statements from different people who had bought cars legitimately. Um, you know, they were buying cars for eight grand, nine grand, and had even got finance. And it even appeared there was, uh, you know, a, a possible fraud going on with some of the financing. Like, um, you know, it was raised about how. Uh, there was a particular finance company, and and some of the information being sent to it wasn't didn't actually reflect what was going on on the ground. Um, but like Cab went, you know, and, and tracked down a lot of people who had bought cars and or, or you know traded in cars, and were asked who did they deal with, and and these men were the people that were seen as the controlling interest, and they very much were making the case, which was accepted by the judge in the end, that this was a vehicle literally set up to launder money mm. from uh, the drug gangs. And and it's not just one of them. It was both sides. So it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, as if, you know, it, it was the McCarthy Dundons had got had got an edge in ahead of, uh, you know, their, their rivals. It was it was both sides. You know, was the, mm. the Keens are, are directly linked into this as well. We've heard before that cars are used as currency in the drug business. And it had that came up in the case of Liam Byrne from Rally Square, who is currently fighting extradition back to the UK on weapons charges. But around 2016, when his company LS Active Car Sales was raided, he was in business there with Sean McGovern, wanted here for murder. Um, and in Dubai, along with his pal Daniel Kinahan. But 
they were literally, it was literally described during that cab case that they were using the cars as currency. So they were using them as payment for drugs. But in this case, were the cars purely bought with drug money and then sold on in order to legitimize the money? Or were the cars being used to transport any drugs? Or was it just simply a business that was set up to to, to make dirty money good? Yeah, well, Cab's case was that it was it was set up to make dirty money good. That um, these cars were being bought supposedly at auction in the UK, mm. and then being sold at whatever price here. But there was no there was no money trail from the UK where the, necessarily the cars were bought. There was evidence heard that uh, there, there was there was something like two million euro worth of vehicles were bought from a car firm in the UK, and there was an affidavit from an English officer to say that the two directors of the firm were both well known criminals. I mean, there was two million quid worth of vehicles bought, and and the place doesn't have a premises. Right. So that kind of gives you an idea that it was very much, it, it was just a total setup to to move to move assets around. Now, there's also alleged that there was known um, criminals like you know from Limerick who had access then to the car. So the guys were able to use it like a little I don't know mm. rent a car service they as well. Benefit like, the client, no? Yeah, well, I doubt. Yeah, well, I'm sure it was, they, they reflected that in their in their tax returns every exactly. year. But you know, it was very much a, a kind of a nice, convenient way, isn't it, to kind of keep changing your vehicle and and like they felt that. Uh, Firstly, they were untouchable. I mean, this Bond Motors company was sitting smack bang in the middle of Limerick City quite openly. I mean, you can't hide cars. It's not like Rolex watches that can go into a drawer or anything like that. But so they were very openly doing it. And the cars were then making their way into the legitimate economy. So the people who were buying the cars from Bond Motors were like you or I. Yeah, it was just regular people. I mean, it was in it's in a prime retail spot. Yeah. Um. On, on, sorry, I think it's coming in from the Tipperary direction. It was in along that road. Mm. I mean, it was. I do remember, like at the time when I heard about the raids, it was pretty spectacular. Like there was a huge number of of officers involved, and of course, there was the photographs of of the. The, I don't know that I guess it was you know guards in 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 tactical gear with with uh, consoles and plenty of sparks going through the fencing and all the rest. Yeah. And and some of these kind of the main principles that were were controlling the company, there's one or two of them were actually on site at the time, and they and they weren't apologetic. They were they were complaining to the police about you can't take this and you can't do that, and and they fought hard, and 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 they have done, yeah. What they lost, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I like I think like I suppose what I found most interesting was just the kind of the sheer kind of width of the networking that went on. Um, and you know it brings in everybody from my old pals and the you know connected to the the dead zoo gang, the fellas mm. stealing the rhino horns, um, all the way over to Birmingham and 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 Bomber Kavanagh, um, you know uh, car firms in Northern Ireland, car firms in Northumberland, I think it is, um, and other places in the UK. Uh, you know all all these guys are are traveling back and forth between the UK and and Ireland and Northern Ireland and continental mm-hmm. Europe on a regular basis. You know, they're all people who have, you know, businesses, you know, possibly legit. Some of them are legitimate businesses set up, you know, they're well able to to run affairs. I mean, you know, and they've all been kind of linked back to uh, actually an interest in pony trotting and right. sulky racing. And this is how some of these guys met. So you have people from, you know, in a way, disparate backgrounds, you know, like, for instance, the Rakeelers and then, the you know, the more hardcore, you know, gangsters from from Limerick City. And then uh, some of these, you know, motor dealers who might necessarily have been hardcore criminals as such. And then there are other people involved then who who wouldn't come from any of those backgrounds and would have come from, you know, potentially respectable, you know, they did actually come from respectable family background and found themselves, you know, you know, working for these people. Mm. So it's 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 a, it's a real insight into how, 
that kind of layer, like, you know, the, the infrastructure nearly of, of uh, gangland crime, you know, people like that Hollier, Thomas Marr, yeah. you know, and th- these guys who operate for 20, 30 years and we rarely get to hear about them. They're uh, like as if they they feel like they're not, you know, they're, they're, they feel, okay, they're hiding in the shadows, I suppose, but they feel like they're not the dangerous ones because they're not the guys who are actually, you know, ordering the hits. They're not, they're actually just going about their business. And usually, especially the ones in the transport, they're transporting anything. They don't care whether it's human beings or drugs or cars or whatever. We look at the car industry there for a little while and we work out, you know, what was so attractive to the of the car industry. And I recall back around this time, or certainly 2020-21, the Criminal Assets Bureau had worked out that there was at least 100 dodgy car dealers in Dublin alone, in a particular part of West Dublin. They were seeing more and more that the car industry was being used as a laundry facility for organised crime. I think next on the list was sort of barbers and beauticians, and these were the sort of businesses that they were they were washing their funds through. But the car industry... so. There was a lot of cars coming in from the UK. There was, you know, value as as such seen in buying a car from the UK. I think the car I had before this one, a sports mini, I brought in from the UK. And there was no... um, something, (laughs) (laughs) Something changed in between then and now with the what you had to pay on it. You had to, you certainly had to pay something to bring those cars in, but you were still getting value and you're no longer... Yeah, there was VRT. Um, VRT. Like you know, you know, it was the, the, the you had to basically pay the taxes you would have paid on on the vehicle if you'd bought it in Ireland, and so it depends on the type of car and etc. So some cars were good value and others weren't. Um, uh, and but now because the UK are no longer part of the EU, it's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that's why we've seen more cars coming in from Japan. Yeah. which ironically is why we've seen more of the kids out joyriding again because there's. There's no uh, problem with cars being stolen in Japan. So these cars are arriving. A lot of them are, are arriving without um, disable, you know, any kind of disabling uh, mechanisms in them. So the, the kids are able to, to start the car with just a screwdriver and off they go, causing huge damage, by the way, to the cars. We're back to like, putting the finger in the dam to try and stop any of this, really, aren't we? Like, <laughs> you know, you close off the UK. But also, I suppose, cars from the point of view of if you need to spend money, most of us don't. Most of us are constantly trying to save money. But drug dealers need to spend money and they need to kind of move their money into the legitimate economy and have something that is valuable to resale. And that's why jewellery and the likes of it are, you know, are something that they like. They also like to wear that kind of thing. Um, Some of them aren't highbrow enough to look at fine art, but that has also been used by criminals over the years. But cars appear to have been this classic kind of uh, item that was sought by them. They like to drive fast cars and expensive cars, but there also is a lot of money there that you can exchange and get into the legitimate economy in just one item. So you bring in, say, a high-end Mercedes or something like that, and you're talking 100,000 100, is going into the legitimate economy in one sale. Yeah, I mean, if you if you can buy, you know, a, high, a high-end car in the UK for 100,000 or even 150,000, whatever, you know, and, and there, there are those cars, um, and you 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 bring it back and you sell it here. Someone gets a good deal and gets it for 110. Then you say, you know, I, I, you're making money that way. I mean, it doesn't really hold up when, when they go at it. They say, well, where did you get the 150 in the first place? Yes. When, and, when and, you go and, back and to you, square you, one, there's you, a problem. You, you, they do argue about it. Um, and and uh, to some extent, you know, it makes it more difficult because it's cross-jurisdictional and all the rest yeah. and it's harder to trace the money trail. 
Um, but I suppose, it, like, I mean, Bone Motors weren't going for the high end. They were going for, for very much for volume. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it was it was in in Judge Owens's judgment. Like he he was he points out that in 2017 their recorded sales receipts were were 5.3 million and were 8 million the following year in 2018, which is as he put it a remarkable success. And I mean, any, any, touch. well, it also gives you an idea of what the the guys in Limerick are are making if this is what's going through you mm. know going one laundering through, going through one laundering facility yeah. and i mean the rule of thumb used to be wasn't it i think something like if if you if you get you know 60 40 like if you lose 60% to make 40% legitimate you're doing well yeah. you know which you know in terms of your paying legitimate tax sounds a bit high and that if you get up to 50 50 like you're at the top end so i mean you know if you've set up a, 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 a you know a car company to launder your cash and if you're if you're losing 80 you know if you're losing only 20% of your money you're 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 doing really well um so i mean you know, going from, you know, three million euro worth of sales. I mean, this is a place with a porta cabin, really. I mean, it wasn't a prime spot. Um, but like it was, it, it certainly wasn't like, you know, one of these slick car dealerships with big glass frontage and coffee machines and, and little lounge to wait in. And those that are totally legitimate have been there for years. And some of them are family businesses that have passed yeah, yeah, their way down yeah. the generations. I mean, certainly I know the guy I buy my cars off and who is completely legitimate and so trusting and trustworthy would say, he has to work goddamn hard. You know what I mean? It is a hard, like it's not a, a easy money in, no. in car sales business. And um, he would also say that you only have to look at some of these guys. They're opening new and all of a sudden they have like a million quids worth of uh, assets sitting on their forecourt. Yeah. And it, it's pretty obvious in a way. But I suppose they had and probably still have a little bit of strength in their numbers. Because there's so many of them, if you consider that there's an estimated 100 um, in in the West Dublin area alone, car dealers, I'm not talking about some of the bigger legitimate firms, obviously, but some of the car dealers. um, Is the resources there to go after each one of them? Probably not. Well, like this is a case in point. It was complex. And I mean, it was like, you know, I think it was more than it was. There was more than the 111 cars initially, but some of them were quickly found to be you not know, belonging to the company, and people were able to say, oh, "Look, that's actually mine." Mm. Um, I mean, even even in the case of uh, the Shane Curtin, there was two vehicles that were seized from his house: one, one belonging to his wife and a Ford Ranger that uh, belonged to him. And the judge decided, "Look, there was no evidence that these were were bought with any you know criminal cash, so they're going to get returns the, yeah. the the value of of those two vehicles back to them." But like you know, it was a, it was it's a difficult. I mean, anyone. If the last time you, you you know I bought a car, like you know, in terms of like just filling in the forms and and all the rest of it, there's a little bit of work to it. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine now if you have you know somebody with a hundred cars, how much paperwork is going to be involved, and and then if they're being imported, you know, from the UK, and untangling that, for and, and possibly then yeah. through through Northern Ireland, like as an added step. You know, it, it just gets it gets complex, and they have to they have to do that, and they have to do it for all 111 cars with a level of proof that is top standard for the court system. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot of work. I mean, there, there was a lot of work, and I suppose in a, in a way, when you look down at the figure, then like you know what what essentially was seized was worth just over eight hundred thousand, which you kind of think, well, that's not a lot, but like at the same time. It, it, it's I'd say it was hugely disruptive to the drug gangs. Like yeah. I mean, it must it must have been. I mean, uh, they're, I'm sure they're still making money, but. You know, like we've seen Operation Glacier, I think, was was this one. And we've seen some people come into court just in, in the last couple of weeks. Um, you had one guy, um, uh, Dermot Plum McManus, who was mentioned in this affidavit, but he was previously in the Special Criminal Court earlier this year. 
and he was caught with a, 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 a couple of thousand euro in, in in his house. And again, that was part of. You remember there was there was um, quite a large number of raids in in different parts of Limerick at the time, and 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 in the county. And the the army search teams were brought in to help. And so mm. this was kind of it would have been in parallel to the Bone Motors investigation. So I mean, it's kind of broken up how they can you know. Uh, hide their money and it's you know yeah. they're, they're 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 going after them like you know in, in that sense and i suppose always uh the criminal assets bureau would say that you know they aren't in existence to make the state money actually they're in existence to disrupt the criminal gangs and the value of that disruption cannot really a figure cannot exactly be put on it um you know this investigation the uncovering of this bone motors as a money laundering element of the Limerick gangs has surely thrown up further intelligence and information about about how they operate and who's involved, like some of the people that you have described. Um, And obviously these uh, sort of board members, as you call them, board of governors in this um, could have been carrying on regardless. You know, the 800,000 is one element of this investigation uh, and just one element. Shane Curtin, his background was he a scrap dealer? Is that my imagination? Well, he's involved in the motor trade, and he has, you know, um, I think Premises I think he might have been. He he was more um, Newcastle West was where he'd been yeah. based, um, you know, along with Mike Nash, and you know, and and, and Nash was is the guy. Uh, he, he's the fella who, after these raids, then it would have been Christy Keane's son took over the same premises to have where he was running his car company at the time. If you remember, it's a, I think a story you did at the time. That's right. We did. And we went down to throw an eye over that premises because Mark Nash had obviously come up and come on the radar as a, because of this investigation into Bone Motors and this cab case. And sure enough, Kieran Keane Jr. was kind enough to show up that day at the premises. And that was obviously a significant link then we were able to make between this, who at the time, Nash was just named really as one of the the respondents in the cab case. But to be able to show the links with the Keane gang was interesting. And of course, um, the Keane gang, Kieran Keane was the original leader of that gang. He was murdered in a spectacular double cross in 2003, conducted by the Dundon gang, which really made their name and put them onto the scene in a big way. Um, And followed by that, his brother Christy Keane took it over. Christy Keane has survived a number of assassination attempts he is a kind of a quiet criminal, isn't he? You don't really see him mouthing off or out and about too much. No, he's he's been tipping away, I suppose, as yeah. they say. You know, he like in in one sense, he was lucky enough during the height of the feud, he was actually serving a ten year sentence. He was caught with, uh, I think, a, a, a sack full of cannabis on the railway tracks close to his house. I don't know. Um, um, and so, he, like, he, he would have spent time. I mean, he ended up being friends with, I think it was John Daly from Finglas at one point. So right. he had a little crossover between some of the Keens and some of the some of the guys in Finglas at one point. Um, but like, he, he's been operating for years. I mean, he he was shot and survived um, when I think when was it 2016? Um, and there are a, a number of people due. Well, there's one person left due to due to face trial on that in the special criminal court. I think uh, either later this year or early next year. Um, but like, you know, that was kind of, that seemed to me in the last, I suppose, uh, the last event really in the feuding. I mean, that does there doesn't seem to have been anything since. Like I remember in the lead up to, to when he, when Christy Keane got shot, there had been a number of kind of incidents where kind of junior members of the gang were driving at each other and chasing each other around the city and threats were being made on social media. But since then, it's been relatively quiet. I mean, there was a real fear that this is going to kick it all off again. But mm-hmm. 
now we possibly know that the you know at, at a higher level there was essentially cooperation going on between the the, the top members of the gang um and you know and it's all about making money so i mean you know that's that's been confirmed to us really essentially by what's come out like from this investigation into into bone motors i suppose the larger question that remains around it is kind of like in limerick you know was limerick a success story um in policing because okay the I suppose the policing and the amount of policing that went into it did quell the feud. You, you have seen key figures like Wayne and John Dundon are behind bars for life and others. Um, but the same gangs are there in the background, despite the rejuvenation of the uh, the estates, despite everything. I mean, it seems a lot of these gangs, the family gangs, you know, it's coming down the generations. It's very difficult to in any way, shape or form, make a difference, isn't it, with 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 that kind of a scenario? Yeah, look, I mean, it's something that I say we, we share with, you know, countries across any Western, you know, states where you have a, a family, you know, a, a crime clan, essentially. Um, you know, when you think about it, like it's the perfect uh, organized crime unit that you have a bunch of people who are tied to each other. And, and the basis that you're related to someone is you're less likely to rat them out or you're more likely to accept the authority of the person in charge and you understand the history of where you're coming from. And then it also gives you a bit of kind of uh, moral justification that you're not just doing this for yourself and you're not just a nasty criminal, that you're actually part of something bigger. Um, you, you know, no more than, say, a political prisoner, you know, would, would find it in one sense easier to do their time because they know that, you know, there's people out there who support them and believe in them. And similarly, I think with the kind of the family-based uh, kind of crime clans, it's a similar thing. Like it, it's, it's I'm sure it's the same with the, the Italian mafia and so on. Um, that when you have these kind of family based groups, it, it, it's, it's, well, it is going to lead to a kind of a, a continuation and that, you know, power will, you know, maybe change between various individuals. Um, and the wealth might move around a little bit as people go to jail mm. or assets are seized. But, you know, I mean, what's the alternative to let these people, let these gangs get even more powerful and more dangerous? Because, uh, yeah. I mean, it has been a success. And yeah. I mean, there hasn't been a, any any killings. I mean, it was like it was it was a, a shocking time, I think, in Limerick where it, it was it was considered normal or uh, not, not that it was considered normal, but that people would be shocked, but not surprised that there'd been another murder. And and when you think about it, when you look back at some of the people who were killed, someone they were all relatively minor street criminals, like, you know, the people who were involved in crime, not not the, not innocent, the innocent people yeah. who were who were shot for either, you know, pointless revenge attacks in one case and, and mistaken identity in, in another. But like some of the criminals were like, you know, these are guys who didn't own a car. Like, you know, they were they were traveling around on sulkies or using their bicycle to get around. You know, they weren't particularly wealthy. And yet at the same time, there was already, you could see the beginnings of, you know, with, with the Dundons using their kind of UK connections and, you know, to to bring in more, ser you know, criminals that carry out hits that wouldn't be recognized by the locals. And so you, you had that, you know, early kind of indication that things had stepped up from what it had been, you know, in, 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 in you know, the 1990s. I mean, going into the Celtic Tiger, it was just the amount of money that was sloshing around. Um, and some of them obviously weren't, didn't really have the sophistication to kind of turn that money into, into greater power. And what we have now, I think, I suppose, is is a it'd be an early way a way of looking. It's like the market has matured or something in Limerick, and that the gangs have you know become better at what they're doing. And mm. and so this you know, in a sense, this board of governors is you know the next wave of people or guys we're never going to hear about, quite possibly. What I find about Limerick, though, is like if something 
happens this week in Limerick, I and you know exactly where to go, where to turn when you pull into the city, which house to go to. They're still where they were 20 years ago. They're still within the communities. Um, there's no easy answer to that. These are some of them are still in council houses that we can readily identify as people running and being heavily involved in organised crime gangs. And they're left within those communities. They're still there. They haven't changed. They're not changing anything for the next generation. You know, they're not like the American mafia who many of them sort of poshed their way out of organised crime by educating their their kids. And they just don't seem to have the sophistication or is it the education or something to do that? I, I, look, it's, it's a hard one to to answer, really. I, like, I mean, you can't necessarily say, like, say that about all of them. There would be individuals that, that, that would have started at the bottom, so to speak, who have you know, moved up and out uh, to some extent. Um, you know, people who've gone on to 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 set up businesses. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, it comes down to like you're you're going to have willing participants in crime in socially deprived areas because it's the role model to look look up to for for young boys, young men. Um, you have people like you know with low expectations essentially, and you know haven't been given a, a kind of a, a a brighter horizon to look towards. Now, some people are able to find it for themselves. Some families do step up and, you know, there are family members who do, you know, show a path out. But there are others then who, you know, I think there's definitely uh, people there who have the capacity and the intellect to move on, but don't want to. And they've chosen this life. And I mean, you know, Christy Kinnan Sr. is a perfect example of that. This is, you know, there's people who choose this this way of life. They like it. They like that kind of uh that sense of power, even freedom or anarchy, and they dress it up and justify it in their own heads in various different ways. That you know, they, you know, I'm you know, I'm truly free because I'm I'm not adhering to the yeah. norms of society and this kind of thing. Like you know, and I'm more intelligent and, than following like sheep, the laws and the rules. Yeah, the, 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 there's all that, and I mean, mm. it's it's easy it's easy to do, but there's definitely people out there who are addicted to the game and, mm. and they enjoy that and. You know, and are able to square off the effect that it has on their own families. And you know, for 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 all the younger kids that come through, there, there's some that don't. There's some that don't make it. I mean, you know, uh, drug addiction, you know, across Ireland is a problem. How many, you know, you know, members of of crime families who aren't tough enough or smart enough or you know just can't handle the the stress or pressure or don't enjoy the life and can't really turn around and talk to people who should be there to support them, saying, like, I don't want any part of this. Mm-hmm. You can't turn on your own. So they're, they're kind of stuck mm. in, a, in, a, in a vicious circle. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's, I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a deeper criminology type is, area yes. to we, get into. Like, but it, it, us, yeah, maybe, but, but it's all those, it's all those factors, really, yeah. you know, plus the yeah. fact that there's all the nice middle class journalists and whatever else are still going out to bite their cocaine. He's keeping things going. Well, absolutely. (laughs) Not us. Blue in the face saying that. But I mean, it's also probably why this is not an issue. People often say, put more guards there, whatever. This isn't just an issue for the guards. Like, I mean, there's all those social structures that are going on that create this situation. There's lack of opportunities, lack of uh, amenities in the education system sometimes to catch uh, kids are about to fall through the cracks. So it it's it really seems to me it has to be a multi-agency approach to any of it. And probably that's what happened in Limerick in the rejuvenation project. And I suppose, like anything, we don't see the successes necessarily because they've just, they have, you know, done it quietly. Yeah, I mean, we, um, like we like good news doesn't sell. No. I mean, to be brutal about it. I mean, and we do concentrate on the, the negative and the bad mm-hmm. stuff and, 
And I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're hardwired to, to do that. Like, I mean, nobody stops to look at a car being driven properly, but if it goes into a tree, we all stop to have a look, you know, yeah, and, and, and it's it's just a matter of... With the criminals, it's kind of like, I mean, okay, we're only really periphery. We're, we're writing about them. We're sort of um, gaining a knowledge about them so as we can speak about them. Imagine policing this and just 20 years later, still going to the same doors and still realizing that these same people are the same cancer they were on the community that they were 20 years ago. It, it's it's you get tired and people get really sort of cynical and tired. It's a hard fight, isn't it? it well, uh, I, I suppose like, I mean, you, you go into these, I mean, you go into these things as a, a younger guard, I imagine, or, you know, certainly as a, a younger journalist thinking, oh, this is going to change. And then you kind of, as you know, 20 years later, we're looking and talking about the same people, to, you know, to a large extent. But like, it's a long game, like, you know, yeah. and I mean, you know, like to go back to the the long, long game, boring stuff about changing things. I mean, that's the problem. It's, you know, if you're if you're setting up all these, if you're setting stuff up to try and uh, organize an alternative way out for people, it involves really boring stuff. It, you know, involves like, you know, having a breakfast club and yeah. after school homework and sports teams being, you know, given a certain amount of, of, of funding and development officers coming in, helping people to join bands, you know, making sure literacy levels are at the right level and you know, uh, educating young mothers on, on on how to cook properly or something. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. all this stuff that is just so time consuming, you know. And I mean, and then, you know, guys who end up in prison or women who end up in prison, that is not, a, you know, a matter of warehousing. You know, I mean, there's so there's so much drugs in prison. Like, it, it's it's difficult to stop. I mean, the the Irish Prison Service have made huge inroads in fairness to them in, in recent years about the amount of stuff getting through. But it, there's determined criminals trying to get stuff in and, and you know, there's no there's no rest for the wicked in that sense. Like, and, you know, people aren't necessarily left alone to get on with it. Um, and it's it's just it needs a kind of a whole approach that I think would, would have to change at least 50 percent of the Irish population's mindset that oh we, we don't want to be making life you know easy for them. But, it's you know, in the long run, it probably saves a lot of money. I mean, you hear about the stuff about, um, say, in, in Norway, where Andre Brevars, you know, the, the, the far right fascist that kills 77 yeah. young people. And you kind of say, no, he's too dangerous to put into a normal prison. He'll corrupt other prisoners with his, his ideology. So they've locked him up in a landing where everybody on the landing is actually staff. And some of them just walk around the place, have a game of pool with each other. They're in the background. So it's to give him the sense that he's in a normal prison and he's not. So, I mean, can you imagine doing that in Ireland, like yeah. the cost of yeah. <clears throat> the sheer cost of that? But yeah. that maybe is that how a mature society deals with the worst possible human being you have? Mm. What do you do? Mm. Yeah, there's no there's definitely no easy answers to any of it. But look, we're plugging away. Everybody is. And particularly the Criminal Assets Bureau. They're weeding the garden week in, week out. And if they didn't, can you imagine what the situation would be like? And if all the cops out there who weren't doing the regular day-to-day policing, can you imagine what it would be like? Because it just doesn't bear thinking um, if these people were given a free run at it. Um, There's an underlying investigation going on in the background in Limerick. We report on it sometimes. There's constant raids happening on homes belonging to people who are senior in these gangs and um, I think there's very much active investigations going on down there that we'll be talking about no doubt in the near future but uh, the Board of Governors named and shamed <laughs> for what? Thank you very much Eamon Dillon Thanks Nicola
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.